Testing one, two, are we good? Camera's on, awesome. All right. Well, let's go ahead and dig in. Turn your chairs around if you want, get cozy. Get your listening guide out if that's your thing. And um, your Bible, you can go ahead and open it to Isaiah chapter one. And we are only in the book of Isaiah today. And to prove it to you, I only have the book of Isaiah today. This is one of those scripture journal notebook things. So it's just the book of Isaiah. So rest assured, if you're not a flipper, we're not flipping today. All right? Um, So by the way, if you have never, um, I think every translation of the Bible has a set of the scripture journals. The ESV has one. This is a CSV. But... um, Like, you have the text on one side and lines on the other. And so, um, yeah, I really like like these. And I'm not one to buy, like, the entire collection of the Bible. But if I'm really doing a deep dive into a book of the Bible, I'll pick one up, and it's really helpful. And that way I can mark all over it and make it look really terrible and (laughs) not worry about it. All right, well, let's open in a word of prayer, and we will dig in. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the book of Isaiah. I am beginning to really, really treasure this book of the Bible um, because it is just revealing to me so many um, just beautiful aspects of of your character and, and just the beauty of Jesus and the promise of ultimate redemption and a new creation and um, all things made new. And Lord, I know that many of us in this room me included, came in with heavy hearts, and um, heavy for a lot of reasons, heavy heavy because of things in our personal lives, heavy because of the things going on in our world, in our country, and God, I thank you that we come to your word, and we are reminded that you are God over all, that you are working, you're working even when it looks like you're not working, and we can trust you, and we must trust you, and so Lord, I just pray that those um, just those those beautiful, anxiety-crushing, life-hope-fueling realities regarding who you are and how you work would just um, touch us this morning as we walk through your word. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to respond. We can't have any of those things apart from the work of your spirit. So we pray that he would move and um, do what only he can do this morning. We love you so much. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want to start by um, talking about some things that just don't go together. Like toothpaste and orange juice. Don't go together. Ew, terrible. Bare feet and Legos. Who's had that experience? They do not go together. Men and colds bad combination. Do not go together. In fact, they have a word for it. It's called man cold, aka dying, death, destruction. Um, Taylor Swift and relationships. Do not go together, although I really do love the music that comes out of her tumultuous love life. Alcohol and decisions. Not a good mix. This one's controversial. All right. But I'm going to throw it out there because I'm a firm believer that pizza and pineapple do not go together. Now, I'm going to allow those of you who love it to raise your hand and, like, champion the cause. All right. I know. Who's the Hawaiian pizza lovers in the room? All right. My mother is a, just loves Hawaiian pizza so much, and I just have never been able to get behind it. But I respect, I respect it. I respect it. All right. Um, happiness and laundry. Just cannot ever coexist. They cannot ever coexist. They're just, they're just, unless you're always, okay, so laundry is like totally, okay, bringing the, the order out of chaos. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. Um, me and low-carb diets. Do not mix. Do not mix. Like bread, carbs, I'm never going to live without them. I want them every, all the time, and I'd rather be fat than live without them. Barring some, like, actual, I know people have, like, actual illnesses and medical reasons. They need to cut those things out. I do not, and therefore I will not. So, um, 
Well, those are all pretty silly, silly ideas, and we could certainly come up with more. I actually had a lot of fun coming up with those um, last night. I bring them up because the book of Isaiah, right out the gate, presents us with two things that just don't seem to go together. And those two things are judgment and salvation. Judgment and salvation. Now, most of us, when we think of those things, we think of them as opposites. They don't mix. You, you, you either get one or you get the other, but you don't get them both. And Isaiah is going to challenge that line of thinking by showing us that God's judgment can actually be the means by which he brings salvation. And what can look to the naked eye like complete and utter devastation may very well be deliverance in the making. Wrath can give way to redemption. And that is Israel's story. And that's what we're going to begin to see unfold in our reading this week. Last week, we talked about the significance of Isaiah's prophecy to the authors of the New Testament and to Christ himself. We talked about how it is assumed that we come to the New Testament already knowing what the book of Isaiah says, except most of us don't. And that is why we are here. We are going to change that over the course of our time together. Now, one thing I did not get a chance to tell you last week, and I think it's really important for us to understand what we're reading, is that the book of Isaiah is an anthology, all right? And what I mean by that is that Isaiah did not sit down and write this book from start to finish, all right? What we have before us is a carefully arranged compilation from his entire career, all right? One of my commentaries put it this way. These chapters are a mosaic of originally separate pieces. And it was an oral culture, so these are um, messages. You can think of them as sermons that he would have delivered. So uh, they're a mosaic of originally separate pieces, each updated and woven into a fresh presentation. Another commentary likens the book of Isaiah to a quilt which I think is a really helpful way to think of it. There's a lot of different pieces. There's a lot of different poems that when they were originally spoken, they stood alone. But they have now been sewn together to make this beautiful um, quilt um, that we are, we are appreciating here. And so we need to let each piece have an impact. We also need to always be looking for the threads or the recurring themes that are um, kind of stringing all the pieces together, all right? And I'm going to be pointing those out to you as we go along. So you can think of a lot of these as individual poems, but they're put together very intentionally, and they're sewn together with these common themes. So just know, this is helpful for me, because as you found out this week, you'll be reading along, and it can feel a little choppy. You're like, well, this seems to be a little bit different than this. And all of a sudden, it, it, we went from judgment to this beautiful description of, like, the new creation. <laughs> um, and then we're back to judgment again. And that's why. That's why. Because this is not something Isaiah sat down and said, okay, I'm going to start. What's the middle? What's the ending? These were all different messages that have been compiled very intentionally through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and put together in what we now call the book of Isaiah. All right, helpful for me. Hopefully that's helpful for you as well. Well, let's go ahead and dig in. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of the kings Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah. All right, so I told you last week that the nation of Israel had split into the northern kingdom called Israel, sometimes Ephraim, and the southern kingdom referred to as Judah. Now, Isaiah will have a few things to say about the northern kingdom, but his focus is almost entirely on Judah and its capital, Jerusalem. In fact, Isaiah's entire worldview is centered on Jerusalem. And if you were here last week, you know why. It has everything to do with that promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Do you remember that? 
David wants to build God a house. God says, no, your descendants are going to build me a house. In fact, your descendants are going to sit on your throne forever and ever and ever, right? So big, huge, massive promise. Um, and guess where the throne of David was? It was in Jerusalem. It was in Jerusalem. And so that's why Isaiah's whole worldview, his whole view of God's plan, his whole view of God's um, everything God does is very much centered on Judah and Jerusalem. That was the place of the Davidic dynasty. Now, this list of kings here, starting with Uzziah, ending with Hezekiah, it tells us when this prophecy took place, and I am going to talk more about the, the, the historical setting kind of as, as we move on, rather than concentrating it all here. So let's go ahead and keep reading. Verse 2, listen, heavens, and pay attention, earth. All right, so God is basically summoning both heaven and earth as a witness, and they're going to be a witness against his people. All right, so listen, heavens, pay attention, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have raised children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. All right, so let's stop there, right out the gate. What is the very first metaphor that God uses to describe his relationship with the people of Judah? Children, parent, child, father, child. And this points back to, we're not going to read it, um, but it points back to Exodus 4.22, which is actually a really important verse, because there God identifies Israel with his firstborn son. And in that culture, there are massive implications to that particular title, that particular designation. But God is a father. Israel is his firstborn son. And how has Israel responded to God's fatherly love and care? What is the word that's used? They've rebelled. They have rebelled against him. And the they in that line, when it says, but they have rebelled, it is emphatic. So it would read, but they, they of all people, have rebelled against me. And I just want to make sure, that we could spend a lot of time there, because I want to make sure you capture the emotion conveyed here. I want to make sure you capture the sadness conveyed here. And I want to make sure you capture the absurdity of their rebellion in light of God's faithfulness to them. All right, that is very much what's being captured in that one, in that one little verse. All right, look at verse 3 gives us another metaphor. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's feeding trough, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. So the way that God had dealt with Israel should have created the same kind of attachment that an animal forms with his owner, with his feeding trough. Now, I do not have a donkey. I do not have an ox, but I do have a pug, and his name is Hagrid, and he is not very smart, but I'll tell you something he knows very well. He knows where his food bowl is, he knows who fills it, and he knows when it gets filled, right? And you can kind of see, it like starts to stare at me a lot more when it's time to eat, right? Or they're obeying his bowl. And, um, and he's not going to let anything, he's not going to let anything get in the way of his relationship with that bowl in that food. And I am really just the food provider, you know? And what this metaphor is telling us is it should have been that way with God and Israel. He had made them into a nation. He had called them his people, his offspring. These were, this was his seed. We talked about the significance of that last week. These were his children. And all that he had done for them in the past should have created that same kind of attachment, that same kind of loyalty, that same kind of explanation. But look at verse 4. They have become a sinful nation. They are a people, but they are a people weighed down with iniquity. They are a brood. My translation says brood of evildoers. That, that word means offspring, seed. They're children, but they're depraved children. So everything that, every title God has give them, given them, every esteemed title is now marred with these, these adjectives describing how corrupt they have become and how sinful they have become. And this is a picture of complete and utter forsaking of their God-given identity. 
That's what's going on here. At the most fundamental level, God's people have forgotten who they are. They've forgotten who they are. And the result is tragic. Take a look at verse 5. It says, why do you want more beatings? Why do you keep on rebelling? The whole head is hurt. The whole heart is sick. From the sole of the foot even to the head, no spot is uninjured. Wounds, welts, and festering sores not cleaned or bandaged or soothed with oil. And what we see here is that their rebellion had resulted in this comprehensive suffering. They're like a person that has been beat up, beat to a pulp. Their sin has had devastating effects. And that question, again, the sadness, the emotion, why? Why? In light of all that God has done, in light of all that he is, why do you persist in your rebellion? Look at these effects. Verse 7, he gets a little more specific. He says, your land is desolate. Your cities burn down. Foreigners devour your fields right in front of you. A desolation like a place demolished by foreigners. Daughter Zion is abandoned like a shelter in a vineyard, like a shack in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Again, these metaphors are so vivid. They're so powerful. If we'll linger on them, we'll let them kind of wash over us. What he's referring to here is that there has been a foreign invader that has come in and reaped large-scale destruction. And here what we have is the first of many references to the Assyrians, all right? So there are two really, really, really bad guys that are going to loom large in the narrative of the whole Bible, but particularly Isaiah is going to focus on them, the Assyrians and later the Babylonians, all right? So the Assyrians had already come in, taken out the northern kingdom, and they are bearing down on Judah as well like breathing down their necks. They have already taken some of the cities, um, and so they are a very, very real threat. And verse 9 is very interesting. It says, the Lord of armies, if the Lord of armies had not left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. And here we have, very important, talking about those threads that string the pieces of the quilt together. Here we have our first reference to the survivors the remnant that will be preserved through the judgment. Keep your eye on words like survivors, remnant, faithful remnant, um, the people that come through the judgment and on the other side experience redemption. Now, what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, if you're familiar with that story? What would happen with that city? Total annihilation, gone, like nothing, nothing left. And that is exactly what Judah deserved. That is not what they get. We call that mercy. And here we're already seeing these beautiful glimpses of that. Very subtly, it's like he throws out one line here and one line there. You're like, oh, there's going to be a remnant. There's going to be survivors. And God's going to prove his faithfulness to them. Let's keep reading. Verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Oh my goodness, this is the ultimate insult. Like, for them, they know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah way better than we do. He's calling them rulers of Sodom, people of Gomorrah. What are your sacrifices to me? Asked the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, or male goats. Anybody read through the book of Leviticus? Have you anybody suffered through that one? Yeah. So God actually does care a lot about bulls and goats and sacrifices and temple worship, and he actually goes to great extremely boring lengths, <laughs> to, to regulate all of, all of the temple worship, that whole sacrificial system, the religious festivals, all the things that many of them are referred to here. So God does not hate those things. Those were God's idea. But there's something about what's taking place in Jerusalem at this time that God hates. He hates it. 
And the language here is so strong. Verse 12, when you come to appear before me, and that, by the way, is the point, (laughs) is to experience the presence, the glory of God. When you come to appear before me, who requires this from you? This trampling of my courts. Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of solemn assemblies. I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. They have become a burden to me. I am tired of putting up with them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. All right, so up to this point, we're not very far into the book, but even so, we've got a pretty vivid description of their rebellion and the state of their hearts and the state of at least the leaders of of Judah. What's really interesting to me, and it ought to be of great interest to us all, is that the temple worship in Jerusalem had continued business as usual. It doesn't seem to have skipped a beat. To put it in our terms, they were still going to church. They were still giving their tithes and offerings. They were still volunteering. They were still taking sermon notes. They were still raising their hands in worship. They were still offering prayers to God. And how did God feel about it? Hated it. Hated it. Disgusted by it. And we have to ask the question, well, why? Why? Well, David put it this way in Psalm 51, 16 and 17. For you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite or humble heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Is David saying there that God hates animal sacrifices? No. Like I said before, the animal sacrifices, the religious festivals, the holy days, they were all God's idea. But if they're not motivated by a heart of humility and love, if they're not accompanied by a life of obedience and surrender, no thank you, no deal, absolutely disgusting, get out of my face. That's the kind of strong language that we, that we are seeing here. And as we'll see, their hearts were not contrite. Their hearts were not humble. They were not following their worship with an actual change of life. And so I think this passage warrants a pause for every single one of us to take a good, hard look at our spiritual practice. You do this church thing long enough, you can do it whether your heart's in it or not. I've been doing this a long time. I can do it whether I love the Lord or I don't love the Lord. In fact, I don't know how to do anything else. And that ought to be um, very sobering. (laughs) So we always need to be asking the question, is my heart right? Why am I doing this? Why am I even here? What are my motives? Am I willing to let God get all up in my business? Am I willing to change the way I think and the way I live? Or am I just here because that's what I've been taught to do? Sobering questions, important questions. Look at verse 16. We start to get a little bit of a glimpse of the remedy, all right? So we've seen the rebellion. It's bad. It's really bad. Look at the remedy, verse 16. Wash yourselves. Cleanse yourselves. Remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. And how do we stop doing evil? Well, you can't just stop doing evil. You have to learn to do what is good, right? You've got to replace it with something else. Pursue justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And then look at the invitation here. Come, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be white as snow. 
Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. Echoes of Genesis 1, correct? Genesis 2, right? But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. All right, so we see here that God's people must be purified. And I want you to take note of the specific behavior that is highlighted in verse 17. Pursue justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. This is something that's going to be repeated over and over again in the book of Isaiah, this call to um, care for the poor and the marginalized. And, uh, and we need to be sure we don't miss the fact that the ultimate litmus test for covenant fidelity, again, it wasn't going to the temple and offering sacrifices. It wasn't continuing to pray. It wasn't continuing to, you know, practice holy days and religious festivals. The ultimate litmus test of covenant fidelity for the people of God was social justice. It was how the poor and the vulnerable were treated and cared for. And this is going to show up again and again in Isaiah. It shows up all over the Old Testament, and it shows up in the New Testament as well. So if you think that social justice is not your thing because you're a conservative Republican, think again. Think again. Verse 18 should definitely be marked with your hope color. I told you last week you should get a color that's your hope color. And you mark all these little blips of hope in the first 39 chapters because they're kind of few and far between, but when they happen, they're beautiful. And you're like, thank God, because <laughs> that was depressing, right? Um, so verse 18 should definitely be marked with your hope cover, color. These beautiful words that probably, if there's a passage in Isaiah that's familiar to you, this is one you've heard before. And this begs the question, how will the sins be made white as snow? How's that going to happen? How is this kind of cleansing going to happen? And he doesn't really give us an answer here. We have to keep reading. Verse 21. The faithful town, what an adulteress she has become. She was once full of justice. So there was a time when the poor were being cared for, the fatherless, the widow, right? Righteousness once dwelt in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross to be discarded, and your beer is diluted with water. All right, so silver can contain some alloy and still be silver, but silver, which has become dross, has suffered total degeneration. Um, probably not a lot of beer drinkers in the room, and if you are, you're not going to admit it here. But I don't know the last time you saw someone pour beer over ice. You don't do that. It dilutes it. If you do, you, you don't know what you're doing. Same with fine wine. You don't. You don't, you don't pour an expensive bottle of wine over a glass of ice, right? It, it dilutes the, the wine, um, and it's pretty much worthless at that point. You might as well have gotten a cheap bottle of Behringer or whatever, you know? Um, and, and that's kind of the picture that we're given here, just the total degeneration, like the total corruption. It's just no good anymore. No good anymore. You, your rulers are rebels, Friends of thieves, they all love graft and chase after bribes. And here we go again. They do not defend the rights of the fatherless. And the widow's case never comes before them. In fact, the only cases that come before them are probably the cases of people who have the money to pay them off. Which the fatherless and the widows do not, right? So there's massive injustice going on. Just like today. Yes, ma'am. Therefore, the Lord God of armies, the mighty one of Israel, declares, Ah, I will get even with my foes. I will take revenge against my enemies. And the enemies be, you know, are the leaders of Israel. They're the leaders of Judah. Those are God's enemies. I will turn my hand against you, but listen to this. I will burn away your dross completely. I will remove your impurities I will restore your judges to what they were at first and your advisors to what they were at the start. Afterward, what? There's going to be an afterwards? Afterward, you will be called the righteous city, the faithful town. Zion will be redeemed 
by justice. Those who repent by righteousness. At the same time, both rebels and sinners will be broken, and those who abandon the Lord will perish. We're going to start to see two distinct groups emerge. So there's the remnant who repent, and there are those who do not. And they have two very different outcomes. All right, so be on the lookout for that. All right, so we were left with the question, how would the people be cleansed? And here we have at least part of the answer. The purification, the cleansing that they need is going to come through judgment. God's wrath is going to fall on Judah. Assyria is going to pose a huge threat. It's going to do a lot of damage. About 100 years later, Babylon is going to come in, wipe them out, destroy Jerusalem, and carry God's people into exile. All of that is contained here in this language. And what Isaiah is telling us here is that this judgment has a purpose. And that purpose is the purification of God's people. When you and I think of grace and mercy, judgment does not enter the picture usually. Like I said in the beginning, salvation and judgment are just opposites in our minds. Either God judges or he saves. Am I doing something wrong? We good? But Isaiah is telling us that for Israel, God judges so that he can save. The judgment and the salvation go hand in hand. And that is what we are seeing here. Now, there's a lot more bad news at the end of chapter 1. But let's go ahead and skip to chapter 2. Because it is a lot of good news. And I think we need some right now. All right, chapter 2, verse 1. The vision that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the last days. Now, when you see a phrase like this, you need to be careful pinpointing a specific time period until you read the whole thing. All right? So last days can mean, like, kind of sort of into the future. It can mean, like, way into the ultimate future. And it's that very far view that, that we're going to see come here. So in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house, this is referring to Jerusalem, will be established on top of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills. All nations will stream to it, and many peoples will come and say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob. And why do they want to go? Why are, what are they excited about? And he will teach us about his ways, so that we will walk in his paths for instruction. That's the same word law or Torah. will go out of Zion in the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will settle disputes among the nations and provide arbitration for many peoples. And they will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up the sword against nation and they will never again train for war. All right, what's going on here? Well, what's going on here is that on the other side of judgment, do they deserve for there to be another side? No, <laughs> but there's going to be. On the other side of judgment, there's going to be repentance and salvation, and the result is going to be that the entire world, you should have circled all nations, many peoples. The entire world is going to gather in a new Jerusalem where they will hear and follow the word of the Lord. So this is, this is a picture a very early picture, and Isaiah is going to develop this so beautifully as the book goes on, especially in the second half of the book. But this is the picture of, I mean, like, Revelation 21 and 22 stuff. This is the worldwide worship of the one true king. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people coming to worship forever and ever in this new Jerusalem, this new creation. My favorite part of this whole thing is what happens to the weapons in verse 4. So they take their weapons, and they make them into gardening tools. I love that. I love that. And when you set this metaphor within the whole Bible framework, what this is symbolic of is a return to Eden. Do you realize the entire Bible starts with a beautiful garden, right? And so we're going back to that. The curse is removed. The serpent will be no more. 
and peace will prevail forever and ever. And is this just for Israel? No. One of the main messages of Isaiah is no, 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 no. It is not just for Israel. This is for the whole world. The whole point of calling Israel is that the entire world might receive blessing. And we're seeing a glimpse of that here in this passage. Do not think for a second that Paul was the first one to think about taking the good news to the Gentiles. That was the plan all along. It was the plan all along. Isaiah knew it. All the prophets knew it. It's all over the Old Testament. Now, as you read on, you realize those four verses were kind of a tease because we're back to judgment. (laughs) We're back to judgment right after that section. So let's pick up in verse 5. It says, the house of Jacob, come, let's walk in the Lord's light. If you want a summary of what God wanted for his people, that's it right there. Just walk in my light. Walk in my light. It wasn't supposed to be burdensome or restricting or it's like, come walk in my light. But they didn't want it. Verse 6, for you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of divination from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. They are in a league with foreigners. Their land is full of silver and gold. There is no limit to their treasures, and their land is full of horses, and there is no limit to their chariots. Their land is full of worthless idols. They worship the work of their hands what their fingers have made. So humanity is brought low, and each person is humbled. Do not forgive them. In other words, they have passed the point of no return. There is no hope at this point. Judgment must fall. Verse 10, go into the rocks and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from his majestic splendor. The pride of mankind will be humbled and human loftiness will be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted on that day. So the focus here is on their idolatry. Um, And this idolatry, of course, is rooted in pride. Notice the repetition of the word full. Full, over and over. They're full of this. They're full of that. They're full of, of, of all of these things, wealth being one of them. And this is most certainly how things must have appeared, especially after the reign of Uzziah. Things were looking pretty good. What Isaiah wants us to see is that their fullness was actually emptiness. And that's an important thing to know. Fullness can be emptiness. We can be full of all the things that we crave and that we desire and actually be very, very empty of what really matters. And that is always, without exception, the nature of idolatry, right? (laughs) It feels like fullness. It's actually emptiness. Those idols, for them, it was actual literal little, you know, gold, wooden idols. For us, it's, what is it, money, power, sex, success. Whatever gives us our, our sense of security and significance, right? Make a lot of promises they never deliver. And that's what's going on here. Look at verse 12. He says, For a day belonging to the Lord of armies is coming. Judgment is coming against all that is proud and lofty. Against all that is lifted up, it will be humbled. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up. Against all the oaks of Bashan. Against the high mountains. Against all the lofty hills. Against every high tower. Against every fortified wall. Against every ship of Tarshish. Against every splendid vessel. The pride of mankind will be brought low and human loftiness will be humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted on that day. The worthless idols will vanish completely. So we have a repeated phrase there, don't we? (laughs) Now what's described here is a massive, thorough humbling. And what I want you to take note of is the spatial imagery in this whole passage. Right? So there's lots of references to what is high 
and there are references to what is low. So we've got lots of high, lofty, exalted, and we've got brought low, brought low, humbled. And this is another main theme. If you're looking for those threads that connect the patchwork, that connect the quilt, all those pieces together, this is another theme, and that is that God alone is high and exalted. God alone. Like there is a position that belongs to no one but him, and it is the highest position. And the major sin of the people is that they had forgotten this and they had exalted themselves. And so what is God going to do? What does God have to do? They're, pa- they're past the point of no return here. What does God have to do? Well, he has to prove to them that these things that they have placed their trust in are utterly worthless and undependable. And if we go long enough placing our trust and our security and our significance in things that are not God, it is, it is evidence of his grace and his mercy and his love and his tender fatherly care for us when he proves to us that those things are as empty as they actually are. And usually that proving is extremely painful. In fact, probably if we were to really sit down and chat, some of those painful experiences of our lives have been the times where God is like, okay, I'm going to prove to you that that's a really bad thing to trust in. I know that's my story. (laughs) And it feels terrible. But it is a sweet and bitter providence. It's a good thing. The point is very clear. Verse 22 kind of ends this whole section. One statement. Put no more trust in mere men. They cannot help you. Only I can help you, says the Lord. Only I can save. That's what the word name Isaiah means. The Lord saves. Who else saves? Nobody. Nobody else. Nobody else. And that is just a repeated, like, theme. I mean, if I were to put my, one, my finger on, like, what is the main point of Isaiah? Only God saves. Only God saves. So only trust in him. That's just something that's going to be reiterated over and over Now, moving on into chapter 3, we see that part of God's judgment is a massive leadership crisis. So Assyria and Babylon don't don't come into town right away. There's first a breakdown of leadership um, in Judah. Look at at verse 1. Note this. The Lord God of armies is about to remove from Jerusalem and from Judah every kind of security. So he's still talking about trust. He's continuing that theme from chapter 2. He's going to take away their entire supply of bread and water. But then look at this. He's going to take away the leaders they depended on. Heroes and warriors, judges and prophets, fortune tellers and elders, commanders of 50 and dignitaries, counselors, cunning musicians, and necromancers. I will make youths their leaders. And unstable rulers will govern them. The people will oppress one another, man against man, neighbor against neighbor. The young will act arrogantly toward the old and the worthless toward the honorable. A man will even seize uh, his brother in his father's house saying, you have a cloak, you can be our leader. I mean, the standards are high. You have a cloak, therefore you can lead, right? Like that's, that's kind of, they're so desperate. That's where they've gotten This heap of rubble will be under your control. On that day, he will cry out saying, I'm not a healer. I don't even have food or clothing in my house. Don't make me a leader of the people. Please don't make me lead the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled. Oh, that's moving ahead. Let's let's stop at verse 7. All right, so here's what's happening. Leaders are disappearing left and right. Immature, inexperienced leaders are taking their place. Society is becoming more and more divided. The age gap is widening. There's a sense of despair that's dominating elections. You know, sometimes it's hard to relate to the people of the Bible. Sometimes it is very much not. (laughs) If this doesn't resonate, nothing will. I mean, we are experiencing very much um, a lot of these same things in our day. Now, verses 8 and 9 are really important because they confirm that this is not an occasional lapse. All right, this is a thorough, willful, ongoing rebellion, and they are proud of it. Look at verse 8. For Jerusalem has stumbled, Judah has fallen, because they have spoken and acted against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. 
The look on their faces testifies against them. And like Sodom, there's Sodom showing up again, they flaunt their sin. They do not conceal it. Woe to them because they have brought disaster upon themselves. Skip down to verse 13. The Lord rises to argue the case and stands to judge the people. The Lord brings his charge against the elders and leaders of his people. And much of these judgment narratives in the first half of the book of Isaiah are God bringing. It's almost like you're entering a courtroom and God is making his case against his people. He said, you have devastated the vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. Why do you crush my people and grind the faces of the poor? This is the declaration of the Lord God of armies. So what Isaiah is doing here is he's going out of his way to make sure we know that God has every right to do what he's about to do. And to drive home even more, to drive that home even more, he shifts his focus to the wives of these corrupt leaders of Judah. So he's been focusing on the leaders, and now he's going to focus on the elite women of Judah. Let's take a look at that, verse 16. The Lord also says, because the daughters of Zion are haughty, walking with heads held high and seductive eyes, prancing along, jingling their ankle bracelets, the Lord will put scabs on the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will shave their foreheads bare. On that day, the Lord will strip their finery. And look at this list. (laughs) Ankle bracelets, headbands, crescents, pendants, bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle jewelry, sashes, Perfume bottles, amulets, signet rings, nose rings, festive robes, capes, cloaks, purses, garments, fine linens, turbans, and shawls. These are high-maintenance women, you guys. They have very full closets. Instead of perfume, there will be a stench. Instead of a belt, a rope. That indicates captivity. Instead of beautifully styled hair, baldness. Instead of fine clothes, sackcloth. Instead of beauty, branding. Your men will fall by the sword, your warriors in battle. Then her gates will lament and mourn, deserted. She will sit on the ground. These ladies never sat on the ground the day of their life. They will sit on the ground. And on that day, seven women will seize one man saying, we will eat our own bread, we'll provide our own clothes. Just let us bear your name and take away our disgrace. What Isaiah is doing here is he's using Judah's elite women as an illustration of the nation's arrogance, and pride, and self-indulgence. These women cared more about their jewelry and their possessions than they did about the poor. So this is an echo of what Isaiah has just said. You crush my people. You grind the faces of the poor. And let me prove it to you by talking about the elite women of Judah. And God says, okay, if you're not going to give of your wealth, I'm going to take it. Again, I will remove that which, in which you trust, if it ain't me. <laughs> right? And so we have this radical removal and replacement. In verse 24, they will be stripped of everything they value. And what's described here is the most thorough, humbling, imaginable. The, the language is so graphic. But is this the end of their story? It's not. It should be. I hope you can capture the, the, the weight and the intensity of the rebellion. This should be the end of their story. End, done, gone, lost everything, done. But look at chapter 4. But, but. Chapter 4, verse 2. On that day, okay, this is referring again to a future day. On that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land, again, garden imagery, the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of Israel's survivors. There's the remnant. Whoever remains in Zion, whoever is left in Jerusalem, will be called what? Holy. All in Jerusalem written in the book of life. When the Lord has, look, look, this is, this is amazing, washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion 
and cleansed the blood guilt from the heart of Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create a cloud of smoke by day and a glowing flame of fire by night over the entire site of Mount Zion and over its assemblies, for there will be a canopy, it's the word hupa, a wedding canopy, over all the glory, and there will be a shelter for shade from the heat by day and a refuge and shelter from the storm and the rain. Wow. Is this at all what you would have expected? No. Radical, unexpected grace. And here's yet another indication that something incredible is going to happen on the other side of judgment. Another indication that judgment isn't going to have the final word. Another indication that judgment and salvation can, in fact, go together. This horrible, rebellious bunch of idolaters will be cleansed, and the survivors, the remnant, will be called holy. What will happen to the filth of the daughters of Zion? What's going to happen to it? It's going to be cleansed. It's going to be washed away. It's gone. And what effect will the judgment and the burning have on the hearts of the people? It's going to cleanse them of their blood guilt. Verse 5 mentions a cloud of smoke and a glowing flame of fire. These are images from the Exodus, right? They represent God's abiding presence among his people. We, those of us who are new covenant believers, would think of it as the indwelling presence of God's spirit, like with us always. And over this glory, there's going to be a canopy, a shelter from the heat by day, and a refuge from the storm and the rain. What a beautiful description of God's protection. And so here we have yet another passage describing for us the new creation. Those Revelation 21 and 22 realities, this fully restored Eden, this new Jerusalem. This is the hope of future glory, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. And the big question you ought to be asking at this point is, who in the world is this branch of the Lord? What's this branch thing? Well, Isaiah doesn't tell us yet, but if you keep reading, he's going to keep building on the concept. And by the time we get to the end of the book, we are going to know who or what this branch is. Now, I did not assign chapter 5 to you. But I hope you were able to read it. I hope you get a chance to read it at some point. It's a beautiful song about a vineyard. Well, it starts out kind of beautiful. It gets, goes downhill real fast, like everything in the book of Isaiah, at least the first half. The gist of this poem, and we're not going to read but a little part of it, but the gist of it is that in spite of Yahweh doing every conceivable thing to ensure the health and the fruitfulness of his vineyard, this vineyard only produced worthless grapes. That word worthless is literally means stinky, rotten, worthless grapes. Every grace had been lavished on them, but you would never know it. And so the chapter ends with a very ominous tone. I want you to turn with me to verse 26, and we're going to end with these five verses. Talking about God, it says he raises a signal flag for the distant nations. He whistles for them to come from the ends of the earth. And look how quickly, how swiftly they come. None of them grows weary or stumbles. He's, he's, he's talking about the enemy nations, Assyria and then Babylon. None of them grows weary or stumbles. No one slumbers or sleeps. No belt is loose. No sandal strap is broken. Their arrows are sharpened and their bows are strung. Their horses' hooves are like flint. Their chariot wheels are like a whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion's. They roar like young lions, and they growl and seize their prey and carry it off, and no one can rescue it. And on that day, they will roar over it like the roaring of the sea. When one looks at the land, there will be darkness and distress. Light will only be obscured by the clouds. Assyria is coming. It's on its way. And after them, Babylon. And don't miss the fact that with nothing more than a whistle and the wave of a flag, 
God commands the most powerful nations in the world to do his bidding. The most evil nations in the world, the most ruthless nations in the world are called to join him in the accomplishment of his plan. Throughout the book of Isaiah, we are going to get to watch God use world events, tragic, gruesome, grisly, hard to watch, hard to look at, hard to hear about, world events to accomplish his plans. And I want to close by reminding you of something, friends. He is still doing that today. And listen, you are not going to hear this on the news. It is not likely to show up as you're scrolling Facebook. But here's the resounding message of both the book of Isaiah and the entire testimony of Scripture. This world is God's world. He has all power, and he knows what he's doing. Amen? It's a word of hope for us right now. We need it, don't we? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the encouragement that we've gained this morning from your word. And many of these women who've sat and soaked, um, maybe just in one chapter, maybe all five, I thank you for the truths that you began speaking and that you, you have, have continued this morning, that you've solidified, that maybe you've made come alive in a new way. And God, we, we're heavy hearted. There's a lot going on in our world, our country. Um, honestly, Lord, it looks like, I mean, it looks like we're kind of losing, honestly. I thank you for the reminder that we're going to get every single week that you don't lose. You never lose. <laughs> you, you snap your finger. You, you give a whistle. You raise a flag. And anybody you want comes running. And they do whatever you want them to do. You're that kind of God. And so, Lord, remind us of that. Help us to see judgment as often... Sometimes it's for Israel, and so often for us. Not in um, competition with salvation, not contrary to salvation, but actually the means by which you save us. You refine, you put us through the fire, you remove the idols. You remove false sources of security. You remove false refuges, and it is so painful. But it is a grace. It is a mercy. It is a sweet and bitter providence, and I pray that we would be able to see that more and more as we walk through these pages together and see that many times our own pain and our own circumstances are a purging. And that pain never, ever has the final word. <laughs> it has a purpose. And you are Lord over it all. And so we thank you and we praise you for all these truths and this confidence that we can have in our God. Because of what you've proven to us again and again. Both in your word and in our lives. And in the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior. And it is in his name that we pray these things. Amen.